Hi, everybody. Hi there. Welcome on this Monday. Back to the Book of Numbers. It is gorgeous out. It is gorgeous out, isn't it? Oh, my it? goodness. Not that I've been out there much. I've been yes. in my at my desk working, doing the work of St. Andrews and ministry and all that stuff. Yes, but I can tell. It's it beautiful really, out. It really, really is. My sister and I just came back from Shops of Legacy West. Of course you did. We did. And you know what I found today? <laughs> what? Today, I valet parked. There's three or four places you can valet. And there's no actual charge. It's completely just a tip. And I thought, I will never try to park in that crazy garage again. Well, I'm glad you figured Man, out that. You know, it'll... that garage is just something awful to navigate. It is. So It is. Anyway, we hope that you guys are doing really wonderful and uh, starting to finish up your lists of what things you need to do before You have much Christmas. left to do, baby? I still have to find something unique and wonderful for my son, Rob. Huh. Unique and wonderful. Okay. That's a tough bill. He's kind of grown up now. <laughs> he and is. he's like the man he who is. has everything. He like, is. Right? So like, yeah. what do you get him? I don't know. So I was, you know. It's difficult. If anybody yeah. has ideas... Type them in the comment section for, for Miss Patty. A 33 she would year appreciate old guy. it. Yeah. Yeah. So. It's doing well, you know. It's doing great. So. so. I don't ever have problems with my daughter in laws or my sister, any kind of girlfriend, any kind of girly present. I'm loving doing that. But it comes to the guys, even with Scott, I just have the worst time. Oh, I do. But you do great, honey. We, you do great. So. We're, we're so blessed. It's just hard coming up with something. It just is. Indeed. So. You know, when I was young and poor, I could, like, get oh, no. get socks and underwear. I'm going to have to call Rule again here pretty soon and say, man, we said, really, not between 3 and 4.15, please. And so the last few <laughs> weeks, our lawmen have shown up at that exact time. <clears throat> Scott really has been doing really, really well with the coughing, but every once I in a while... I just can't get over like this last 7% or something yes, of it. Yes, yeah. Because I, I really feel fine. Yes, you know, do. You know, but it's just this last bit. <sighs> <sighs> okay. I think we're going to get ready to start today. We really do hope you all are doing absolutely wonderful and... Um, if you can enjoy that day just a little bit when yeah. class is over, but, but don't don't leave now because this today is really important. It's pinnacle it, in the story. Yes, it's pivotal to the story of the book, to the Bible story, really. In fact, it is probably one of the most easily confused pieces of scripture. Yes. And I really did mean to say pinnacle and not yes. pivotal. Okay. Because isn't the pinnacle? Oh, I, I, yeah, yes. I doubt that. Yes, I was just back in I my, couldn't use pinnacle in my sentence. Back in my sales days, I was a member of the Panasonic Pinnacle, pinnacle. Club. Of course, you were <laughs> the club of winners. <laughs> anyway, you better open us in prayer. Okay, I'll pray. Gracious Lord, we are grateful to be here today on this beautiful Monday, and we just pray that. Um, your spirit will move among us as we come to this really, really, this 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 big story in in numbers really in the Old Testament, and it's one that so many people don't really understand what's going on. But we're here, we've arrived, we went through all the censuses and countings and everything else, and just and just lead us lead us through this. 
In your son's name we pray. Amen. Amen. So, yes, we are we are there. And we are in chapter 12. And what is that? Let's see. Chapter 12, verse 10. All right. In so, in the book of Numbers. Yep, book of Numbers. In the book of Numbers. So, I am going to get us caught up just a bit, I think. First, though, if anybody is, I don't, I, this is the I'm one of the most obvious announcements I've ever made. No class Christmas Day, no class New Year's Day. You know, I probably don't have to say it, but I feel compelled in my sometimes obsessive way to put it up there. So, we will not meet again until January 8th. And on that day, at 3 o'clock, we will just pick up where we leave off today. All right? So, the book of Numbers, as you know now, is tells the story of getting from Mount Sinai after they've been given the law and have built the tabernacle, this journey northward to the promised land. And that's what this arrow is meant to convey, the red arrow on the map in 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 front of you. And last week we had um, the great story, this classic story of the quail, right? Where the people are whining and moaning and whining and moaning and whining and moaning, um, just as they did after leaving Egypt. And they want meat, and so God gives them meat until it's coming out their nose. And it's a real uh, classic story. And I told you Arthur preached on it one time because he was just a... It, just so intrigued by the story and it's a message of abundance i suppose all right so so this little map just reminds you that they went from egypt down to mount sinai um they've constructed the tabernacle and you will remember that the tabernacle and the ark of the covenant um directed by god through the cloud by day fire at night takes them on this journey on this journey to the promised land all right so um i'm gonna leave this there i've got a couple more little maps for us but we need to wait just a little bit to get there okay so in the book of numbers last week i hope the lawnmower isn't going to be too bothersome i have a i have a good mic here that is not I don't have it on omnidirectional. I have it on just, it's supposed to pick up Patty and it's supposed to pick up me. So I hope it's not too much of an annoyance, but if it is, there's really not much I can do. So in the beginning of chapter 12, we find out that Miriam and Aaron, Moses's brother and sister, um, have told God, well, you know, kind of like what's Moses got that we don't have? I mean, what makes him all that? We're prophets. We can do this. And God basically says to them in this uh, uh, the section, right in verses 7, 8, 9, 6, 7, 8, he says to them, sort of, this is what God says to them. Okay, you're like other prophets, but Moses is not. Moses I meet and I speak to him almost almost face to face. 
I speak to him in a way I don't speak to other prophets. And so Moses is different than the other prophets of Israel in this. And it's an important thing to remember. It's, um, you know, when, when Jesus goes up on the Mount of Transfiguration, who does he encounter there? None, right? Yes. Right? Jesus is transfigured, and then on one side is Moses, and on the other side is Elijah. And Elijah is one of the great prophets of Israel. So, so is Moses. So the question then is, in verse 9, look at verse 9 in chapter 12 of Numbers. The anger of the Lord burned against Miriam and Aaron, against them, and he left them. So he departed. God departs from, from, from them. And when the cloud lifted from above the tent, Miriam's skin was leprous. Ooh. It became white as snow. This, this defiling skin disease. Aaron turned around toward her and saw that she had a defiling skin disease. You know, the word leprosy in the Bible covers a wide variety of ailments. It's not specifically just Hansen's disease, which now we is the modern name for leprosy. It include, and it would include that but includes other things which make a person, what, scary to people. Yes. And so they would be excluded and, and they would be seen as, you know, having done something to bring this upon themselves and um, have to move away from the community. That's one of the storylines in the movie the, the Ten Commandments. So, Aaron, after seeing what has happened to his sister, says to Moses, Please, my Lord, please, my Lord. That's his Moses he's speaking to. I ask you not to hold this against the sin we have so foolishly committed. Right? They should have thought before they opened their mouth and challenged God about this. Certainly. Do not let her be like a stillborn infant coming from the mother's womb with half its flesh eaten away. That is a dramatic, that is a mad, dramatic description oh, oh, of what oh. has happened to her. And of course, Aaron doesn't want his sister to suffer. Neither would Moses. So in verse 13, so Moses cried out to the Lord, cried out to Yahweh, please God, heal her. And Yahweh replied to Moses, If her father had spit in her face, would she not have been in disgrace for seven days? Now, why would someone's father spit in someone's face in this world from, you know, almost 4,000 years ago? Because of some insult or something that they delivered to the father. And so if such, an, such an, an, an insult were made, which is what Moses is kind of analogizing their words to God to, this insult to God, like they know better, they challenge God like we know better, you're leaving us out, what's wrong with you? And um, so God says to Moses, confine her outside the camp for seven days. So for seven days, she is going to be outside the camp 
because she is unclean and it's like she's got to serve a, a penalty for her insult of God. So Miriam, so then he says after that she can be brought back. So Miriam was confined outside the camp for seven days and the people did not move on until she was back. So she out, goes outside the whole camp, treated very much like an outsider. When she comes back, they will move on. After that, the people left Hazaroth and encamped in the desert of Paran. The desert of Paran is simply north, northeast of where they are. And I'll have a map that will show you more about this in a minute. Scott, yes, should we love. take anything from this that Aaron is not um, punished at all? That it's only the sister? Well, if we look back at the beginning, mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> there isn't a good reason to say that because I'm looking at it. I wanted to see if maybe she had spoken first. Yes. But it simply says, has the Lord spoken only through Moses, they asked. Right? Remember yes. that? Yes. Hasn't he also spoken to us? So why does she bear the punishment? Well, because I don't, because I, I doubt there's a different reason. Okay. I think it's because of the patriarchy. Okay. That's what I think. I think it's hard for us to grasp. Um, I mean, the, the analogy in verse 14 is to a father spitting in a daughter's face, or, right? Did fathers spit in the face of men or sons? Maybe not. You know, every time you see a woman treated unfairly and very differently than the men, I mean, it's just hard for us to imagine living in this kind of patriarchy, especially hard for the women in our world to imagine living in this kind of patriarchy. But if you want to experience it. No. <laughs> if you do, you can buy an airplane ticket and you can fly to Afghanistan. That's the world of the Taliban. The women of Afghanistan have been returned to living in these absurdly patriarchal conditions. It's, they're not educated. They can't speak for themselves. They don't lead a public life. They have to stay completely covered. It is a man's, 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 man's world in Afghanistan ever since we left a couple years ago. Well, that's what this world is, and none of you want to go there. So now we move on to chapter 13, and this is a, Numbers 13 is a very pivotal chapter in the Bibles. And so I think what we're going to do is is plunge into it. They're making their way northward and they have come to the desert of Paran. So let me show you where the desert of Paran is. The desert of Paran is basically at the top of this red arrow, just to the south and a little bit southwest of a place called Kadesh Barnea. 
Here's another map that shows. Notice it's not the straight line because, you know, they make their way, and it's probably more like this. They make their way northeastward around the wilderness of Paran, but that's where they have come. In a, in a beeline, in a matter of, I don't know how long, a couple of months, maybe, something like that. And so the Lord said to Moses, 13, chapter 13, verse 1, send some men to explore the land of Canaan, which I am giving, I am giving to the Israelites. From each ancestral tribe, send one of its leaders. So at the Lord's command, Moses sent them out from the desert of Paran, right, right up there, near Kadesh Barnea is where they are because the promised land is just north of there. Canaan, the Negev. Interesting, look to the west um, of Canaan and where do you find? Gaza. Ah. So, Moses is going to send them out and these are their names. From the tribe of Reuben, Shemua, son of Zachar, from the tribe of Simeon, Shaphat, son of Hori. From the tribe of Judah, Caleb, son of Jephunneh. Now, circle Caleb's name in your mind. From the tribe of Issachar, Egal, son of Joseph. From the tribe of Ephraim, Hosea, son of Nun. Circle his name in your mind. From the tribe of Benjamin, Palti, son of Raphu. From the tribe of Zebulun, Gadiel, son of Sodi. From the tribe of Manasseh, a tribe of Joseph. Remember, Joseph's sons had two sons by an Egyptian wife, Ephraim and Manasseh. From the tribe of Manasseh, a tribe of Joseph, Gadi, son of Susi. From the tribe of Dan, Amiel, son of Gamali. From the tribe of Asher, Sether, son of Michael. That's a funny name right there in the midst of that list, isn't it? We use that name today. From the tribe of Nephtali, Nabi, son of Vosi. From the tribe of Gad, Guiel, that's what it is, Guiel, son of Maki. Um, speaking of the names, is you know, if you watch the names come across in the stories from Israel right now, the soldiers and civilians, you run into a number of these names, these biblical names that, that are used in Israel today. But in any event, these are the names of the men, 12 men. Moses sent to explore the land. Moses gave Hosea, son of Nun, the name Joshua. So Joshua is one of these 12 men. Moses gave him this new name, which basically means God saves. It is the name in it is the name Jesus. Yeshua is Joshua. Jesus is how we put that in English. Um, Jesus is how we did it in how we bring it into Latin, I think. Anyway, so so he has this new name, God saves. What would be the significance of that for Moses? 
it would be that this is a story of what God is doing for his people. It's been that way ever since God, you know, lifted Moses up way back in Egypt. It's been God, God, God all the way. All the way. And so now, very smartly, they're going to send in some, you know, uh, not a raiding party, just a party to check it out. Verse 17. We doing okay over there, Patty? You're doing great. Okay. When Miss Mos Rachel is with us today. Who is? Miss Rachel. Really? Yes. Awesome. Hey, Miss Rachel. You mean, wait, wait. You mean not the Miss Rachel. Rachel Stella's Corden, yes. <gasps> well, I'm I'm honored. We are honored. Yes. We don't ha often have a celebrity with us. We don't. <sighs> Verse 17. Bye, Miss Rachel. <laughs> when Moses sent them to explore Canaan, he said, Go up through the Negev and on into the hill country. See what the land is like. And whether the people who live there are strong or weak, few or many. What kind of land do they live in? Is it good or bad? What kind of towns do they live in? Are they unwalled or fortified? Key question, right? As we've talked about many times, any city that's going to be called a city has walls in this world, in the ancient world. But otherwise, you were just laid open to any raider or enemy or conqueror that was coming through. Are the walls unwalled or fortified? The cities. How is the soil? Is it fertile or is it poor? Are there trees in it? or not. Do your best to bring back some of the fruit of the land, because it was the season, you know, for first ripe grapes. And grapes and vineyards and all that plays a big role across the Old Testament. Scott, could I ask a yeah, question? Yeah, sure. Um, Linda Revere is asking, Larry would like to know if there's any significance to the changing of names. Because whatever Hosea means, Joshua means God saves. And so the emphasis is on God saving. It is the same name that is given to Jesus. Jesus is named basically Joshua, Yeshua. God saves. God, God, God. God saves. That's it. That's what it's about. And you'll find out why in a minute. Verse 21, so they went up and they explored the land from the desert of Zin as far as Rahab toward Labo, Labo Hamath. They went up through the Negev and came to Hebron where Ahiman, Sheshai, and Talmi, the descendants of Anak, lived. Hebron had been built seven years before Zoan in Egypt. Well, isn't that a travelogue? So basically... <laughs> What the solid line traces up to the wilderness of Paran, then the tw party of 12, really spies, right? That's what they kind of are. They're going to go into Canaan. They make their way northward like the dotted line is showing on the map into the Negev and a little bit further north. I didn't extend the red line arrow, I guess, quite north enough. But if you go 
follow it north, you'll see Hebron along that road. And if you follow north, you'll even come to Jerusalem. So they are in that area where that red arrow is, and they've gone there to check out the land of Canaan. Big, small, fertile, good soil, bad soil, walled cities, cities that aren't walled, the whole thing. And that is smart. Wouldn't you agree, Patty? Yes. I mean, yes. sure. I mean, there's nothing wrong with that. No. One of, um, we as Christians are expected by God to be prudent. It's a way to think of being wise. Prudent, prudent is, prudence is one of the four virtues of Aristotle. It simply means having, being able to look at the consequences of the actions that you're about to take. That's a, that's a lot of what wisdom is. I'm going to do something. We're going to do something as a church. Well, what are the consequences going to be of that? Is it really something we should be doing? Should we doing it? Should we be doing it differently? Because, but so often people don't think about the consequences, or they just don't have the experience to to be prudent when it comes to making choices, making decisions. We all want our kids to grow up to be prudent, to, to be able to see the consequences of their actions and make decisions accordingly. All right. So we get all these little place names, you know, and they're all going around there. There's one in particular that stands out. Anak in verse... 22, the Anakim in ancient literature were kind of thought of as these really almost mythical people, sort of, sort of giants, alongside the Nephilim from Genesis 6, who we're going to hear about in a minute. So keep the, keep, keep the descendants of Anak, the Anakim, sort of in your mind. So let's just go to verse 23. When they reached the valley of Eshcol, they cut off a branch bearing a single cluster of grapes. Two of them carried it on a pole between them, along with some pomegranates and figs. Now the fact that this scripture says a single cluster of grapes, yet it takes two men on a pole to carry it, is meant to tell you what? It's heavy. What else? It's um, sort of sacred or something because your hands shouldn't touch it. It's holy, maybe? Nope. No? Nope. 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 It's not holy. It's just grapes. No, I know. Yeah, but, but, think, about but just no think about just it. think about the message the writer's trying, trying to give you. They're going to spy on the land. They come across they take a single cluster of grapes. It's so big it takes two people and a pole to carry this cluster. Yes. This is a bountiful land. Okay. It is. It's a land of abundance. I've seen this drawn by somebody who did like a painting or illustration with it. And it's these enormous grapes, all in a cluster, hanging on a pole, two guys carrying it. It was way too literal. It's talking about the abundance that is just waiting for them, waiting for them. So they carry this big, abundant, these abundant grapes, and they carry 
pomegranates and they carried figs. And the place was called the Valley of Eshcol because of the cluster of grapes the Israelites cut off there. I haven't looked it up, but I'm guessing Valley of Eshcol has something to do with grapes. At the end of 40 days, they return from exploring the land. So 40 days, they go up and they explore and they wander around and they check things out. Now, let's talk about 40. There are many 40s in the Bible. They are not all like 40 days being marked off on, the, on a calendar. <coughs> they express a period of time that's not a little but not huge. It's a pretty good period of time. And, and it gets used over and over in the Hebrew Scriptures and in the, the Gospels because it takes on the significance. Once um, uh, Moses goes up to the mountaintop for, for, 40, for 40 days, once it rains for 40 days and 40 nights with Noah, each time it isn't really trying to mark it all off in a calendar. It's just saying to you, this is a pretty, a pretty long time. Not a few days, not a year, but it's a pretty long time. The people in the ancient world were not nearly as focused on time as you and I are. No watches. Um, just, it's, it's a different way of living. Imagine that you lived in a world in which there were no clocks. And somebody said, well, I want to meet you tomorrow. And you're going to say, well, like, when do you want to meet? They're going to say something like, well, I don't know. When the sun's pretty high in the sky, I'll meet you there. Right? Something like that. I, I find it hard to imagine living in a world in which there's no clocks, no conception of time, no tick-tock, tick-tock, tick-tock. The world divided into 15-minute chunks. Oh. But a lot of time, it sounds pretty good. <laughs> it sounds pretty darn good. Okay, so that's done now. They've gone, they were gone for a long time, 40 days, and now they've returned. Carrying, I guess, that big bunch of grapes. Those abundant grapes. Anything else from anybody? No. Okay. It's funny, I get so confused between my iPad and my computer monitor that I just reach to touch my computer monitor to make it move. It doesn't work like that. No. No. <laughs> <coughs> Sorry. Now, you know. <laughs> yeah, well, I, they probably make one that does. I don't want it, but anyway. Verse 26. They came back to Moses. These are the 12 guys. They came back to Moses and Aaron and the whole Israelite community at Kadesh in the desert of Paran. Back to, back to the map. Right there at the top of the solid red, the upper solid arrow. That's where they are. Okay, so I'm going to take that back down before somebody tells me to. Then they reported to them and to the whole assembly and showed them the fruit of the land, the grapes, right, and the pomegranates and the figs. They gave Moses this account. We went into the land 
to which you sent us. And it does flow with milk and honey, which is an expression of what? Abundance. Right? Jesus came right to bring abundance, an abundant life, he says. Abundance. God wants us to live abundant life. God pours his grace out on us abundantly. And so they say, well, it does flow with milk and honey. Here is its fruit. And then the hammer drops. Isn't this the way? This is our way. Yeah, it's awesome. It's a land of milk and honey. And, and we've got all this fruit to show you, but... But the people who live there are powerful and the cities are fortified and they're very large. We even saw descendants of Anak there. The, and Anak, the Anakim, Nephilim, this mythological, sometimes half-divine, giant people what's you know it's usually when I teach this it's just they're coming back and saying the land's abundant but come on people they're big cities there and they're all giants they're all giants the Amalekite verse 29 the Amalekites this is the historical enemy of the Israelites the Amalekites live in the Negev. The Hittites, the Jebusites, the Amorites live in the hill country. And the Canaanites live near the sea and along the Jordan. So sorry, wait one second, honey. They're just blowing right outside the window here. And hopefully they'll be gone in a second. Do you? Yes. Okay. Sorry about that, folks. Goodness. Verse 30. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, there's milk and honey, but this is a world of giants in there. Then Caleb, that's why I told you to circle his name. Then Caleb silenced the people before Moses and said, You should go up and take possession of the land, for we can certainly do it. How can he be confident that they can do it? Who's on their side? God. The Israelites. God is. Exactly. Exactly. God's on their side. The standard rule for the Israelites is, throughout all of this, all of the book of Joshua, the rest of it, when you do what God tells you to do, you win. When you don't, you lose. 31. But the men who had gone up with Caleb said, We can't attack these people. They are stronger than we are. And then they spread among the Israelites a bad report about the land they had explored. They said, the land we explored devours those living in it. All the people we saw there are of great size. They're like giants. They're giants. 
We saw the Nephilim there. The place you encounter the Nephilim before this is in Genesis 6. We won't look, go back to it. It's a great, it's, it's a period, about six verses that are just like, what to make of that? But in those verses, the Nephilim are these creatures, I guess, who have sex with the daughters of the earth, basically. And so there were legends not restricted to the Hebrews and Israelites about these people. Um, interestingly, in the gospel, Jesus talks about the pre-flood time. That's a time where you encounter this little bit about the Nephilim in Genesis 6. And Jesus makes no mention of any of that. Right? So, so, um, Who are the daughters of the earth, Scott? What does that uh, mean? Nobody knows. Not really. Oh, well, let's go. All right. We'll go back to Genesis 6. Go back to Genesis 6, and we can see it for ourselves. And you will say, well, Scott, no one. I mean, you're not going to get agreement about what Genesis is about. This, this little portion here. It's one of the portions that reminds you how old these writings are. Like when... Anyway, I'm looking into that one. Chapter 6, verse 1. In Genesis, Genesis 6, verse 1. We're, we're hunting down the Nephilim. When human beings began to increase in number on the earth and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of humans were beautiful and they married any of them they chose. Then Yahweh said, My spirit will not contend with humans forever, for they are mortal. Their days will be 120 years. Verse 4. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God went to the daughters of humans and had children by them. They were the heroes of old, men of renown. Who are the Nephilim? I don't know. You're not going to find agreement. Okay. <coughs> you know how people talk about money passages in books or in movies you know there's really essential what you should really focus on this isn't he, it <laughs> this isn't it but we're coming to the three verses that you should okay. verse 5 Yahweh the Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on earth and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time Eugene Peterson paraphrases it as evil, evil, evil from morning till night. It's all anybody ever thought of was evil. So verse 6, Yahweh regretted that he had made human beings on the earth and his heart was deeply troubled. I prefer the NRSV translation. And God was deeply grieved filled with sadness at what has come of the humans that he made in order to love them. Right? Yes. Verse 7. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to keep you in Genesis so long. So the Lord said, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race I have created, and with them the animals, the birds, and the creatures that move along the ground, for I regret that I have made them. 
But Noah found favor in the eyes of Yahweh. So, wow. You know, Patty, you didn't keep us here too long. Genesis 6, verses 5 to 8, are really, that's another critical Bible place. Jesus refers back to it. He doesn't talk about this, this Nephilim and all that stuff. It's just... It's the wickedness of the human heart, the darkness in the human heart that burdens us, that burdens us today, right? Yes. And it's the source of the world's brokenness. The world's brokenness isn't imposed on us from the outside. The world's brokenness comes from within us. And it was true then, and it is true now, and it was true in Jesus' day. So go back to, to um, Numbers. I'm doing this on my iPad here as fast as I can. Right, so the, the, peop, the men who went, 10 of the 12, not Joshua and Caleb, they're ready to go in. All we've heard from is Caleb so far, but the rest is coming. So look back at the end of chapter 13, in fact, because I bounced out of that. Last verse, verse 33 of chapter 13. See, we keep, you, we keep your um, fingers flying through your Bible, don't we? That's a good thing. We saw the Nephilim there, the men said. The descendants of Anak come from the Nephilim. We seem like grasshoppers in our own eyes, and we look the same to them. So they see that the land of Canaan is actually has people in it, and they lose confidence. They lose, what do they lose? They lose their faith in God. What does it mean to put your faith in God? It means to trust God. God has told them, I will be with you. I will be with you. I will be your God. You will be my people. Basically, just do what I say. But they don't really trust God. And it's going to get worse, just like it got worse after they left Egypt. It's almost like a like an instant replay here. Why would it be an instant replay? Because of the brokenness in the human heart that we cannot fix. That God must fix for us. That's why you must have a Savior. So, verse four, chapter 14 verse 1. Okay. That night, all the members of the community raised their voices and they wept aloud. All the Israelites grumbled against Moses and Aaron and the whole assembly and said to them, Oh, if only we had died in Egypt or in this wilderness. Why is Yahweh bringing us to this land only to let us fall by the sword? Our wives and children will be taken as plunder. Wouldn't it be better for us to go back to Egypt? Now, if you know the book of Exodus, that is what they say pretty much as soon as they cross the Red Sea and go into the wilderness. And they're ready to go back. And then they get to Mount Sinai and they get tired of waiting for Moses to come down from the mountaintop. And... 
That's what you get. They make the stupid golden calf. They want to go home. They want to go home. They don't trust God. Verse 4, And they said to each other, We should choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Well, Then Moses and Aaron fell face down in front of the whole Israelite assembly gathered there. Joshua, son of Nun, and Caleb, son of Jephana, who were among them, who were among those who had explored the land, tore their clothes. That's an ancient symbol, rending one's garments of, of grief. They're grief-stricken over what's happening. It is like instant replay for them. They all lived through the, the, the exodus from Egypt. They all lived through the grumbling and complaining in the wilderness. They all lived through the rebellion at the bottom of Mount Sinai. They tore their clothes and they said to the entire Israelite assembly, the land we passed through and explored is exceedingly good. If Yahweh is pleased with us, he will lead us into that land, a land flowing with milk and honey, and will give it to us. Only do not rebel against Yahweh, and do not be afraid of the people of the land, because we will devour them. Their protection is gone, but Yahweh is with us. Do not be afraid of them. Verse 10. What's the first word? Well, I'm, this is, of course, the NIV, right? Yeah. What's the first word in verse 10? But. 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 The whole assembly talked about stoning them. And the glory of the Lord, the glory of Yahweh, appeared at the tent of meeting to all the Israelites. Just quick refresher for anybody who are new people who are with us. Okay, here is the tabernacle. That tent right there, that is the tent of meeting. That is the tent that is filled with God's presence at the end of the book of Exodus. <coughs> Inside that tent, at the back of it, is a curtain. And behind that sits the Ark of the Covenant with the mercy seat on top. And that is where Moses would go to speak with God. So this is God's home. It's God's dwelling place, as it were. Not that God can be contained here. But it's just that he dwelt with these people in a way he didn't dwell with any others. God is not limited by space and time as you and I are. So, Scott, you did have a question from yeah, uh, Jim Hess super. was wondering, was the land more fertile way back then? Well, I mean, the land's really pretty fertile now. As long as you stay on the western side of the the hilltop range, like where Jerusalem is, I put the map. Let me see. I gotta make my way to the map. Back to the map. It's like you, if if you go up the dotted arrow, go up the road, you'll come to Hebron, and a little bit past that, Jerusalem. Yes. 
And then you'll see the Dead Sea over there. Mm -hmm. As long as you are to the western side of Jerusalem, it is fertile. I mean, we've been there many times, Patty and I have. It's very green. You can see they have, have yep. But the, the, the mountain ridge, mountains, I mean, they're not like Rockies. These are like, Jerusalem is about 2,500 feet. But it's enough to wring whatever moisture there is out of the um, systems coming across the Mediterranean and deprives everything east of Jerusalem from rain. So the Dead Sea is like a dead moonscape. But as long as you stay on the western side, yeah, it's, it is fertile. You know, to remain fertile, of course, it has to be worked and protected. And But these are agricultural economies and agricultural people. The Israelites really are now are very nomadic with a lot of herds, but they will become much more agriculturally focused over time. Okay, so, verse 10. But the whole assembly talked about stoning Moses, Joshua, Aaron, Moses, Joshua, Caleb, who were saying, "Let's we got to go on. Let's trust God. Come on, people. Then the glory of Yahweh appeared at the tent of meeting into all the Israelites. The glory is the manifestation of God's presence. And Yahweh said to Moses, How long will these people treat me with contempt? How long will they refuse to believe in me in spite of all the signs I have performed among them? I will strike them down with the plague and destroy them, but I will make you, Moses, into a nation greater and stronger than they. That's an instant replay from what happens at the bottom of Mount Sinai. When Moses comes down from the mountaintop and sees that the people have made a, that golden calf and they're worshiping and praising it for taking them out of Egypt and all that stuff, at that point, God says, I am not going on with him. And God and Moses have this long two-way conversation. And in there, at one point, God says, look, I'll destroy them and we'll start over with you. Kind of like, kind of like what? In a way, it's sort of like a mini Noah moment, I guess. And Moses says, no. And he's about to say no here for much the same reason. Verse 13, so Moses said to Yahweh, well, you know, if you do that, then the Egyptians will hear about it. By your power, you brought these people up from among them and they will tell the inhabitants of this land about it. <coughs> All right. They have already heard that you, Yahweh, are with these people and that you, Yahweh, have been seen face to face, that your cloud stays over them and that you go before them, lead them in a pillar of cloud by the day and a pillar of fire by night. If you put all these people to death, having none alive, the nations who have heard this report about you will say, Yahweh was not able to bring these people into the land. He promised them on oath. So he slaughtered them in the wilderness. Mm. See, so Moses is basically saying, God, 
Do you want people to say this about you? That's what's going to happen. Let me tell you, that's what's going to happen. You don't want that. So, Moses goes on. Now may the Lord's strength be displayed just as you have declared. And then we get a third instant replay. This is from chapter 34 in Exodus. It is... Moses is the one saying it because he's heard it before. In Exodus 34, it comes to Moses. It is the self-revelation of God. It is this ancient Old Testament understanding of God given by God. Yahweh, the Lord. The Lord is slow to anger abounding in love and forgiving sin and rebellion. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children for the sin of the parents to the third or fourth generation. Now let's stop there because I'm going to switch over. If you have an NRSV, you're welcome to, but I'm going to read you the NRSV translation because it's much better, much better the Hebrew here. So, let's see if I can do this. Can I make it work? Oh, boy. Here we go. All right. So, here, here, here it is, very much as it is in Exodus 34. And I'm reading from the NRSV, so you can just, just listen. The Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Steadfast love is that, that term that's used like 250 times in the Hebrew Bible. It means, it, the word is hesed, hesed with that kind of messy H. Steadfast love, a love that doesn't let go, forgiving iniquity and transgression but by no means carried the guilty, no more, not pretending that wrong isn't wrong, wrong is wrong. Pretending that wrong isn't wrong isn't good. <laughs> wrong is wrong. There are a lot of things that happen in this world you want God to be angry about, upset about, understand that they're wrong and unrighteous. Lots of them. But by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the parents upon the children to the third and fourth generation. It isn't the word punish. It's visiting the sin of the parents upon the children. Visiting this in the iniquity of the parents upon the children. To the third and... What does it mean? Visiting the iniquity. When you spend enough time with your Old Testament, you come to see that you don't have... You shouldn't come to see God as sitting on a mountaintop like Zeus waiting to smite people with lightning bolts. That's not who God is. The biggest clue that that's, a, that, that's not how God is is Jesus because Jesus is the full revelation of who God is. So, so what is this? This is the acknowledgement that there is a fabric of moral causation in God's universe. And sadly, 
sin, violence, abuse, can be taught in homes, experienced in homes, passed on to children and to children's children. It's a terrible thing, but it is the truth. It, um, we, in my Tuesday class, we just finished the story of David, who basically raped Bathsheba, murdered her husband, Uriah, and he brought a sword of violence into his house. And sometime, not too long after, one son, Amnon, rapes his half-sister Tamar. And Tamar's full brother, Absalom, another of David's son, murders his half-brother Amnon. Because David brought violence into his household. And the prophet Nathan had told him that. That this was the, this is going to be the consequence of what you did, David. Of what you did. Sin begets sin. Wrong begets wrong. Violence begets violence. That's why the cycles have to be stopped. Stopped. Because they have this way of going on and on and on and on. So I'm going to go back to the NIV now because I know that's what everybody has and that's what we use. I just have to find it. I have so many versions of the Bible available to me in this particular app. I don't have them all. I'd have to sell the house to afford them all. Are you a new version? No, no, no. I, I'm, I'm using the NIV study Bible because I like all the footnotes and all those kind of things. Well... So, verse 19 in Numbers chapter 14. So, Moses says to God, in accordance with your great love, forgive the sin of these people. Just as you have pardoned them from the time they left Egypt until now. One of the really remarkable questions to ask and one that isn't typically asked, is why is God sticking around with these people? We do Earlier we just read from chapter 6 in Genesis, evil, 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 everywhere, it's all there was, it's all anybody thought about. And God was grieved to his souls, to his heart that he had ever, ever made these humans. But God doesn't leave. He does start over with, Moses, with Noah, but he doesn't leave and just say, okay, well, I'll just leave you to your mess and go on to the another galaxy or somewhere. Even when the whole Noah thing kind of comes crashing and burning after they leave the, the, the ark, God then, God then comes to Abraham and God starts over again and chooses Abraham and his wife Sarah, through whom all the families of the earth will be blessed. And that story comes to its culmination in Jesus. Why does God stay? And the answer to me is actually simple. Because God is love. 
He made the world in order to make these people. And God loves them. And what God wants is for them to love him. And God is relentless in his pursuit of these people. And no matter how bad it gets, Hosea chapter 2, no matter how bad it gets, he's going to take them out into the wilderness and God will woo them again. Like they were young lovers. Woo them again. We're just going to start over. Time and time and time again. Until finally God takes on human form. The Son, the only begotten Son of God, takes on human flesh. And is given a human name, Jesus. It's, it, it's a remarkable story. Attested to primarily by what? His resurrection. That's it. It's his resurrection. That's the linchpin that holds the whole thing together. So, so Moses is saying, God, you're just going to need to pardon him. You did it before. You can do it again. And so in verse 20, Yahweh replies, I have forgiven them as you asked. Nevertheless, as surely as I live, and as surely as the glory of Yahweh fills the whole earth, not one of those who saw my glory and the signs I performed in Egypt and in the wilderness, but who still disobeyed me and tested me ten times, not one of them will ever see the land I promised on oath to their ancestors. Not one who has treated me with contempt will ever see it. But because my servant Caleb has a different spirit and follows me wholeheartedly, I will bring him dot, dot, dot. This is going to encompass Joshua too. Into the land he went to, and his descendants will inherit it. Since the Amalekites and the Canaanites are living in the valleys, turn back tomorrow and set out toward the desert along the route to the Dead Sea. So, here's the story. In a Reader's Digest version, they have made their way northward to the Promised Land, they send a party of 12 spies in. The spies report. And the people chicken out, led by 10 of the 12 spies. They chicken out. They chicken out. They will not trust God. They will not trust God. And so what does God say to them? <coughs> All right. You're grown-ups. I'm not going to make you do something. You've treated me with contempt. All right. So here's what's going to happen. And guess what that is? They're going to wander in the desert for 40 years until that whole generation dies off and then they will enter the promised land. That, my friends, is how it works. So many people think that what, ha what happens is they leave Mount Sinai and then they wander for 40 years trying to find the promised land. Like, wow. Yeah. I mean, if you start to think about it, that doesn't make too much sense. And it's not, doesn't make sense because it's not, it's not what happened. What happened was they basically made a beeline for the promised land, but then they wouldn't trust God. 
They wouldn't trust God. And so with the exception of Joshua and Caleb, they are not going to enter the promised land. They're going to wander for 40 years. Back to the 40, you see. It's, we'll find out, I guess, I don't know, maybe today. We're almost done. The 40 years matches the 40 days that the um, exploration party spent in Canaan. They're going to wander in the wilderness for 40 years. And then they will enter the promised land. So this is this is what makes it such a pivotal story. Not only does it explain the 40 years in the wilderness, which is an odd piece of this whole thing, but it's totally focused on the question, will we trust God? Do we hold God in contempt? What are ways we might hold God in contempt? See, it's fertile ground for every preacher I know. For Christians, sort of the badge of membership in the people of God, in the church, in the body of Christ, those are all synonyms, is simply faith in Christ. And the best synonym for the word faith, pistis, in the Greek is trust. Trusting Jesus, trusting Jesus, trusting that what he did was done for us and has brought us the salvation that we could never bring ourselves. I watch movie after movie TV after TV, speech after speech. So many people are naive about the human heart. I believe they honestly think that we could all just, if we would all just come on, just get along. Let's just get along. Come on, people. Let's just, get, if we would all really just do that. If we woke up tomorrow Let's just get along. We can do that. Let's do it. Every generation seems to be filled with this idea. But it's a naive anthropology. It's a naive understanding of humans. No, we're broken. There's a darkness in the human heart that we cannot eradicate, that we cannot overcome, that indeed God has to overcome for us and has in the person of Jesus. I'm getting worked up here. I'm losing my voice. Okay. So, let's just go. I think where I would go is too long to do right now. So, we're going to leave a little. You, you get the drift of where we are. So the rest of this chapter, which we'll do on January 8th, is just all the filling in the blank about how this is going to work, right? But basically, they are going to have to wander in the wilderness for 40 years. Mm 
there's a lot of bad theology out there that almost makes people into robots, that God just, you know, puts strings on us, and God can do this to us, and that to us, and this to us, and that to us. I don't think that's good theology at all. I don't think it's biblical theology. God wants our love, and for love to be love, it has to be freely given. And these people have turned their backs on God. They don't trust God. What does God say? All right. Okay. If you want to shake your fist at God all the way to the end, you can shake your fist at God all the way to the end. All the way to the end. But don't. <laughs> so, I do wish everybody just a very Merry Christmas. And um, I'm going to miss everybody these next two weeks, but meeting on Christmas Day and New Year's Day would be a bit much. Yeah. Right, Patty? Yeah, it would. Yeah, it would be a bit much. Yeah. So appreciated you're putting up with the yeah. lawn guys. Yeah. They, they kind of fell back into their old ways. They did. I know they just forgot. It's just kind of one of those. Gonna have to remind them. Gonna have to remind them. We will. So, so anyway. I have a question for yeah. you, Scott, because the number of the people that are <coughs> online today... Um, do come to the Tuesday class yes. in person, but some do watch it online. So the fact that tomorrow is our Christmas party, will we be doing anything on Facebook tomorrow? Starting at Well, here's what's going to happen. Okay. I'll let you decide what happens around oh, Facebook, okay? okay. So we're going to gather in Pearl Hall, and the first portion of it is going to be around the Christmas potluck. Yes. And we're going to share some eating and some noshing on treats. I mean, it's not like the potluck that we have, but Andy Ibsen's bringing pork loin, so, oh, wow. right? Yes. So it's more substantial than it was at one time. So if you want to come, just come. Come on down to Pearl Hall. Yes. 11.45 room maybe would it be good. It should be fun, really. Yeah. And there'll be a good and, But I, I actually prepared uh, a Christmas lesson on Matthew uh, Matthew's birth story, focused on Joseph. Okay. Because Luke, we mostly do Luke in church at this time of year. Yes, we do. And Matthew gets kind of overlooked, except for the wise men. But Joseph is kind of like, we don't talk about Joseph too much. So that's what I thought we would do. So I'm going to do it if, I mean, we can turn the stream on and just leave it on. I I guess or, it won't get stopped. I don't, I don't know. Or maybe have it on, but with no sound until maybe 1230 or so. Right, yep. Yeah. So I'll, maybe we'll do that. We'll turn the stream on. And then when I'm ready to talk, I'll okay. just turn the sound on at that point, yes. and we'll see what happens. Yes. And if you come on and it's not working or you have no sound, even though I'm talking, that means that some, like TNT Sports Argentina, <laughs> has interrupted things <laughs> again. That them. has happened it many has, times. It has. They yeah. So anyway, over. that's it. But okay. um, then please help me get the word out that in my Tuesday class in Piro Hall, We are going to start the Book of Acts on January 9th. Yes. That Tuesday. And it's, we will be in, we're going to start at verse 1, do what we always do. We're going to start at verse 1, and we'll go all the way through to the end. Yes. And it's going to be quite a journey, because there's a whole lot of great stories, important theology in it, important sermons really that you find in the book of acts and people don't know the book of acts very well 
Yeah. So that's, that's what a we're great way do. to start off the new year because I know is. a lot of people buy themselves different types of reading the Bible, you know, this year and things like that. What a but it's great really good way to, to come and, and do that. It's good to it's it's good to do that on on your own. But it's good it's to even do better it. to do it with a group. It is because you right? can ask your questions. Yeah, and you can hear other people's questions. Right. That you know, I learn something every time. Yep, we meet. Okay. All righty. You want to pray us out of here, baby? Yes. Thank you. Uh, Thanks, guys, so much. We hope to see you guys around either, you know, up at the church for one thing or another. Um, Scott will be the liturgist at um, 8 o'clock o'clock on Christmas Eve. And again, we <coughs> are doing the Christmas. No. Oh, New Year's New Eve. Year's Eve. For whatever reason, there's only one service at 10 o'clock on New Year's Eve. I don't understand that. So we might be kind of crowded, and um, I would so appreciate seeing some of familiar faces out there because it's going to be a little mind blowing for me. But um, anyway, um, love y'all, and we just really hope and pray you have a wonderful Christmas. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this time to gather again today to study your word, Lord, to study this book of numbers that is so often overlooked and as Scott sometimes says so often the pages are stuck together but we can see God that there really are very important stories that are told in the book of Numbers and it's one of those kind of books where you get a lot more than you thought you were going to get out of it I know that I know it's true for myself we pray God that we would feel your presence God we would seek your presence throughout this whole holy season Lord we just pray God that you would watch over us and keep us and our family safe and well now, God, and in through this new year. We thank you, God, so much for the greatest gift of all, which was the birth of your son, Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay, everybody. Bye, all. Merry Christmas. Merry, Adios. Merry Christmas. Until next time.